1: In this episode, we visit with Carolyn Baker, author of An Unintentional Accomplice, A Personal Perspective on White Responsibility, a narrative of one woman's path to confronting internalized racism, white guilt, and the complexity of racism in America. Carolyn Baker was 62 years old when she learned about the murder of Emmett Till, which sparked a personal investigation into her own personal biases. Starting with her upbringing in Southern California, Carolyn confronts white privilege with directness and honesty. Richard Mitchell, a professor at Cornell University, had this to say about the book. In an unintentional accomplice, Carolyn Baker lulls us through a cookie cutter Southern California childhood and Girl Scout white bread mattress, the mirror of Disneylandish life, as we bask on the beach in our own smug skins. Then, like a stiletto, she slips in Emmett Till's American Tragedy, making clan enablers of us all without any need to dress up in a great white sheet. Baker has clearly called out racism as the timeless tragedy in our time. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, landiswade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotterearspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you, that takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page, that's patreoncom ncom forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Carolyn, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Landis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks.
1: Yeah, and you are coming to us from where today?
0: I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, California, which is my my hometown.
1: Uh, first of all, your your book that we're going to be talking about today it won the Silver Nonfiction Award, uh, so uh, congratulations on that and congratulations
0: on the book. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
1: I want to dive into the title first, uh, An Unintentional Accomplice. Um, when I saw that title, you know, there there were a lot of things I could have read into it, but I, rather than doing that, I'm just going to ask you <laughs> the questions about it. Why do you believe that you were an accomplice uh, in the racism that has existed during your life?
0: I think the the idea of it being unintentional is really key. Um, my people came here in the in the colonies. You know, the Bakers and the Stanleys came from England in the 1600s, so we've been here a very long time, and the way i was raised which i was born in 53 was in an all white community all white girl scout troop all white neighborhood so my my entire life was really quite insular and not segregated really i had no interaction with people of color really so when i was all the way through a 30 year career in nonprofits help in the helping professions because my my family were Quakers. It was instilled in me to be of service. And at 62, I was uh, watching a documentary on Black History Month. And that's when the first time that I even heard of the story of the murder of Emmett Till. So that just gives you a, a context of just how, um, insular my life was. And so when I say unintentional, it really meant that I just really did not have a, a real clear sense of m- how my dominant culture that I was raised in, that there was a lot going on in addition to that, that I was really quite unaware mm-hmm. of, not out of uh, an intention to be in any way hurtful or not equitable with people, but just really not knowing
1: Yeah, the word accomplice though is it's a very loaded term. I mean, because it's used in the criminal laws to describe someone who's actually involved in assisting in some kind of overt act, you know, toward another person. So you know, it it does come with that kind of baggage associated with it. I'm I'm wondering, uh, Carolyn, how do you think it was that you went sixty some years without learning about that story regarding Emmett Till? Well.
0: Two, two points. And one is that I think in, in your, your reference to the accomplice part, I think that's a really important point, that the difference between being an accomplice is were you aware? Was it intentional? And so the idea of the way I was raised was um, that the way I learned in the public school system about American history was very much about the the narrative that Columbus came, discovered the United States, and then we had a friendly Thanksgiving, and and then we had um, some laws that helped to abolish slavery, and then we just got better from there. That was kind of the frame in the fifties and sixties. Bear in mind, I'm I'm of a certain age, so there was that, and then there was also I was not interacting with any other cultures. So the story of Emmett Till wasn't a conversation that was had in my house or in my um, circle of friends or educational system. It just, um, I I didn't have an exposure to any, like the civil rights movements were, I lived out very close to Watts and in the 60s, when the Watts riot happened, we all were scratching our heads saying, why are they burning down their, their own neighborhood? So the idea of cause and effect really wasn't part of my um, experience or education.
1: Yeah. And and your subtitle for the book, An Unintentional Accomplice, is A Personal Perspective on White Responsibility. And it reads, you know, somewhat like a a memoir. Mm -hmm. Uh, You take us through your life starting from from early age uh, to, to where you are now. Uh, and by the way, we're sort of in the same camp. I was born in the <laughs> in the fifties as well. But, uh, but but when you when you say uh, a personal perspective on white responsibility, wh- what do you mean when you talk about white responsibility? That is, w- what responsibility exactly are you talking about?
0: Yeah, that, the idea of the book, as you say, was a memoir. After I saw the documentary on Emmett Till and realized how unaware I was, then I started looking back at all the decades of my own life for no other reason except to understand my own relationship to civil rights movement, to uh, social justice, just to understand myself, not to call anybody else out or make anybody wrong. It was really a self-exploration. So in that sense, it's my perspective on how it was for me. And when I say white responsibility, there, there comes a, a point where we say, okay, we, we acknowledge the history and the injustice. Now, what do we, do we say, do I say, well, that was, that was really um, a tragedy, And it's better now. Or do we continue to, like in my next book, I'm continuing to dive in and say, well, how is it that we got to this point? How is it that I have sort of embedded, unconscious even, a divide between me and people of color? So it's really an exploration that is a difficult one and a stressful one and one that I had never undertaken before in my life. So the idea that it's a personal perspective on my responsibility as a white woman.
1: Yeah. And before we get to your reading, uh, where you're gonna talk about uh you know, the Emmett Till story here and how that sparked your uh you know, personal investigations you describe it, uh I wanna talk about uh, the book cover. It's interesting I sometimes do this. You know, you've got uh you've got pictures of yourself in various stages of your life, starting when you were very young in pigtails, and then you've got your cap and gown. It looks like you're a uh, I don't know—is that a cheerleading uh, sweatshirt or something, or a yeah, letter girl I, thing in, in high, high school? school. <laughs> yeah, school. <laughs>
0: right. yeah.
1: And then it looks like then we have the more mature Carolyn with the glasses, the academic here, and uh, peeking out from behind all these other young, young views of her. Is—is is this? I'm just wondering what the symbolism is here uh, of all these different uh, images of yourself, almost as if you were trying to show maybe what the external you, uh, ha- how that person grew over time. Uh, we're looking at, uh, at what uh, you know life would have been like as a, as a as a young white girl turning into a young white woman.
0: I think it is a a demonstration of just how conditioned I have been during uh, my lifetime, starting as a little girl growing up in Lakewood, California, which was one of those communities created like Levittown. It was uh, done. 100% white GIs with the uh, financing for our first homes after World War II. So that's where the story. That's where I was born, and then from there went to all all white school system in public schools, and then to graduate through the education system to become a teacher, and I was never really asked any. Um, questions or anything exposed exposing the idea of how race would enter into my dynamic in the classroom with uh, students. And then I started a 30-year career after being a teacher in the helping professions. So they're all interrelated in a way that is about me being in the dominant white culture and that being normative for me and then to come to become involved in social justice.
1: Yeah. And you got uh you've got an impressive bio here. You, you, 30 years executive career in nonprofit settings. You you've been a consultant, graduate degree in educational psychology. You you you're working with uh, the the Black Owned Two Leaf Press, uh, where your book is published now. And you but at one time, Carolyn, you were Young and married and in a commune, and you've, <laughs> you've been through d- divorce and remarriage and divorce, and you fall for your children, all this adversity you faced over time. How did you go from being in the Jesus movement commune to where you are today? How do you think that happened?
0: i think uh, it it kind of is emblematic that I have been a a person interested in growth and in contemplative issues. And having lost my father at an early age, I think that also established me being um, a bit of an observer or a witness to things that might be seen as unjust or traumatic. And so there's been a um, proclivity, I think, for me throughout my life to search for ways to perhaps make progress as a world and, or a, for myself personally. And um, the, the journey's not over. And I think put put that all together um, and we get to be in our 60s where we're at a point in, in life where perhaps we are elders and can serve to have people benefit from both my support and the benefit of my mistakes and to be a supporter of those that are are still out there, like the younger ones still in the um the very energetic business of social justice,
1: yeah, and so this you, you do kind of a personal investigation of your own uh, you know growing up and not knowing what's going on you in the world around you, but then also you're learning things over this course of time, like the community where you grew up. Uh, you talked about how your father uh, had been in, in, in the service. He gets out. He's got the GI Bill. You know, he can he can get money to buy this little house that builds up equity over time. But there was a certain group in the country that wasn't allowed to participate, and it was people of color, right?
0: Right, that it was really um, state-sponsored or government-sponsored. You know, the the denial of mortgage. Mortgages to people of color was really not just a um, social, it was really a, a government program. And so to see how it was just so normal that there was this discrimination and that it resulted in a tre- tremendous wealth gap that we still see today. And to to begin to say, yes, that happened, then how do we level the playing field for those that didn't have the opportunity of real estate as a wealth developer? A wealth generator. Uh, that it really becomes an interesting question if, if we are honest to say that that was truly unfair, then, then what? You know, how do we how do we make yeah. it fair in a way that you know? I think many people might have the impression that a re- reparations means a check, give it you know, a, give a check to people, but it really doesn't. I, in my opinion, it it means systems change that. Uh, undoes that built in discrimination from the past and gives everyone a chance to to thrive.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, in addition to reading your book, uh, which was very thought provoking, I went on your website and looked at uh, articles you've written on your blog about uh, the, the race and issues related to it. And we're going to actually be l- talking listeners uh, on our Patreon channel uh, at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Uh, Carol and I are going to talk about how to write about your writing because she's done that uh, very effectively. But Carolyn, one of the things that you, you know, you wrote about here uh, in one of those blog posts was this idea of for all those, uh, you know, black families that were cut out, the veterans who didn't receive the funds that the the whites did, uh, those who were redlined out of, you know, being able to live in the communities like you grew up in, Mm -hmm. you did mention the possibility of reparations to. Those particular families—is uh, that a viable option? You think uh, to to try to go back and track that to 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 try to offer that what that equity that was lost to those who didn't get to participate?
0: It's interesting. There's a very uh... A glaring example right now of that happening here in Los Angeles. And it's called Bruce's Beach. It was a, a Black-owned property right along the coast in Manhattan Beach here that was seized by eminent domain for the ostensible reason of creating a park. But 30 years later, the park was <laughs> had never been created. It was basically to, to remove the Black Residents there, and so today that that property is being returned from the uh, eminent domain from the public trust, being returned to that family. That's an example Mm -hmm. of just using the existing public land to return to its rightful owner, and of course that would have really an interesting conversation about publicly held uh, Native American lands as well. But to put it in a more specific or more narrow context. For example, if uh, it was to be a decision to give reparations to those who were not allowed to participate, some of them are subsidies for down payments. We see that in different home ownership programs, but they're they're rather modest compared to what it really takes to enter the housing market. So another example could be that it, it becomes the onus of the government to purchase market rate homes and then sell them at a discounted rate to the heirs or the, the, the families who were denied those, those properties back in the day. So there's ways to approach it that... That, that the, the smart people among us are figuring out, it's almost like a new civil rights movement, a way to approach reparations that is doable and fair and could be easily accepted by the public at large, as opposed to some methods that there could be some uh, resistance, like that it just is, uh, we just need to move on, that sort of thinking. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to talk more about this. Uh, There are a lot of issues in this book. Uh, I've got some more to talk about, but let's let's do this. We have a reading on the podcast where the authors give voice to the written words. You're going to read from a section of the book that uh, relates to uh, uh, Emmett Till. Uh, So uh, whenever you're ready, just, uh, just jump right in.
0: Chapter four, Emmett Till. In 2016, I was sitting on my couch watching one of the recommended documentaries, and the narrator began to unfold the story of the 1955 murder of Emmett Lewis Till. I was stunned as the shocking photos of Till's brutalized body crossed the screen, just as they did when his mother Mamie demanded that the media show the graphic images because she, quote, wanted the world to see what they did to my baby. Unquote. I turned to my partner, barely able to speak, with tears welling up in my eyes. How could I not have known about this? My heart was broken wide open. I experienced the immediate and universal horror and anguish any mother would feel at the sight of such cruelty to her child. The pictures of Till's brutalized body did to me what the 1963 smiling school photos of the four black girls murdered at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham had not done. I looked directly as a mother into the face of a child brutalized beyond recognition. It could have been any mother's child. It could have been my child. As my response moved from my head directly to my heart I felt the reality and the depth of my previous complacency. Just in case there happens to be anyone else unaware of one of the most galvanizing events of the civil rights movement, Emmett Till was a 14 year old youth from Chicago, brutally murdered while visiting relatives in Money, Mississippi. Emmett and his cousins were joking around at a grocery store when he made the fatal mistake of interacting with a white woman. Carolyn Bryant, violating the strict racial codes of the South. Emmett was kidnapped in the middle of the night, four days later, by Bryant's husband and brother-in-law, then tortured, beaten beyond recognition, and shot. His body was tied with barbed wire to a cotton gin fan and thrown into the Tallahatchie River. The two men responsible were caught, tried, and acquitted by an all-white, all-male jury some of whom had probably participated in the crime. The two murderers later admitted to the crime in an interview in Look Magazine. And three decades later, Bryant recanted her testimony, saying she had lied about much of the story. Back in the 1960s, Bob Dylan had written the lyrics and the music to the song, The Death of Emmett Till, memorializing the murder. But back in the 1960s, no one that I knew was listening. I'm sorry. I'm working to listen now.
1: Yeah, that is a uh, a a terribly powerful story. And particularly, uh, you actually included in here some photographs of uh, Emmett Till and his mother um, and then her, you know, with the body afterward, even a picture of the Tallahatchie River where they found his body. Um, You said... Carolyn, in your book, after finding out about this uh, story, that uh, you kind of became the uh, person who could quickly ruin a dinner party <laughs> by, bring, <laughs> by bringing up these topics. T- talk about that.
0: Well, um, yes, it's these are stressful topics, and they aren't topics that are um, small talk. And mm-hmm. The idea that I felt this as a mother, any mother that has had to go through something like this is changed. And so I, I was changed by the realization from a human point of view, not from a civil rights point of view, but just a human point of view from those pictures. So when I, I realized that um, I, it wasn't just Emmett Till's story, there's been hundreds and hundreds of Emmett Till stories so to begin to care, I think, is the shift. And that care was rather um, intense <laughs> and it still continues to be. It's like once you, as a human, once you see something that that really, really touches you in such a deep way, it's hard, it's hard to go back. And I mm-hmm. think that yeah. in some ways I, I it, there might be some, a little bit of ghosting that goes on now because of, of where i am today and what i'm writing about
1: yeah and of course emma till was was the worst you know of all hate crimes before we even have that label Mm -hmm. it was an evil act you know the crime was tied to an overt you know discriminatory animus it's uh it's different uh markedly from you know some of the institutional racism that we talked about earlier like the uh Redlining that deny people of color the opportunity to buy homes and that kind of thing. But what do you? I mean, we're in a very polarized environment today. What do you see as the bigger problem today? Crimes based on race or these institutional policies that adversely affect uh, people of color? Which which is the? I mean, one seems like something for law enforcement. The other seems like something that's more policy based.
0: Yes, it's complicated. I, I think the story with Carolyn Bryant also has the component of a white woman that she um, it could be said that she um, knew exactly what the outcome would be when she brought it to her husband. that there really was a a, a role that white women, a white woman played in this. And so I think that there has been um, the the normalizing, of the policies, you know, that if uh, this was a year after Brown versus Board of the Education, so there's a policy decision, and then there's a backlash. So they, they really go hand in hand, they're really interrelated. And the massive resistance movement was founded in opposition to Brown versus Board of Education. So the institutionalized and the human neighborhood side of it are really tied in together. There's, I don't really see there is a separation.
1: You talked about the resistance movement and at the time you described, they were resisting these changes in policies and, and trying to integrate the, the school systems with Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, I actually saw something on the news recently where a teacher was fired because she put up a black lives matter, you know, poster in her classroom and, uh, in, in Florida, and so you've got this uh, this backlash against uh, you know this particular movement. You 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 probably have a perspective on this, given all your research. What's going on here? Is this part of the whole polarization issue?
0: You know, polarization is. Um, it, it, I I think this really isn't about red or blue or conservative or liberal. It's really about our humanity and having a val- values. Are the policies that we're putting in place, are they, are they based on human values? Are they, are they based on what's going to be good for my grandchildren, the world that we're going to create? So it, as we are, as we are in identity politics, or as we are so positioned, there's no movement because we see the other side as wrong. And, and really in my book, my, my purpose was for me to understand myself and to not tell anyone else what to do but to begin to see that i ha- i have had a wound also from not having the ability to really have a um, experience a culture of diversity and equity and the richness of all that we've we've all been losers as a result of that Mm. so to begin to Mm. just re transform the way we even see what is what's the economy for what's our culture for it's really a chance after covid to to rethink to rethink this polarizing and to rethink let's not rush back to normal let's let's really look at all the steps that brought us to this place of polarization because there Mm. is still time to reframe our culture and to reframe our values that that we really do all hold in common, which are the like the social determinants of life. You know, we all we all want to have health and education, safe place to live. These are, are things that we all want. This was what John Kennedy said after uh, back in the sixties that we we all breathe the same air, we all want the same things for our kids. So to to drop this uh, positioning because it's really it's hurting us all because we are not getting any, there's no movement. We're not getting anywhere.
1: Yeah. We don't have enough time on this podcast to uh, unpack the, uh, you know, what the uh, the spin artists of the world, the politicians can do with uh, a few words here and there. So yeah. let's, let's kind of let's stay, we'll, we'll stay back. And you did not try <laughs> in this book to, to, le- to, to do that or to lecture to people necessarily about what they should or didn't do, but you, you do offer, you know, by talking about your own personal perspective and your own thoughts on this, you do offer readers some some options. You even give us a, a a checklist, an anti-racist checklist at the end of the book. And so let's just talk for a minute about a few of the things that you, you would like readers to sort of take away uh, or learn from this or be able to do in response to some of the points you've raised.
0: I think that if, if someone might recognize something about their own experience, in my experience as a white woman... And to begin to see that there are a lot of other voices to listen to. For example, I have a bibliography there of many, many black authors. What, and what has been their, their lived experience. And to believe it and to listen. To see that the, uh, the idea is to have an open mind. And to have an open mind, I think, takes some humility and the ability to question and to understand that America does have a lot of complexities in it, that we can have both things, genocide, slavery, freedom. you know We have a, a very complex story here. But yet the idea is if if anyone might begin to want to be on board for engagement in progress, that we really have to understand how we got here. And I I had to understand my own relationship to all of that complexity. So the takeaway is to read, you know, read a book. And this is what's so great about this podcast. High five to you and Charlotte readers (laughs) that it's uh, reading authors of color. I I think that's really a a key. And there's um, uh, so many books to read. And I have a, a bibliography in this book and my next book. Um, the the Indigenous People's History of the United States. That's the title of a very good book. So to have to have a a broaden our our consumption of of the story of America.
1: Yeah, that's great. And it it really is a comprehensive bibliography. They can start by reading your book, An Unintentional Accomplice. (laughs) And and then uh, so uh, I like the fact you mentioned this open mind because you wrote a guest column The Los Angeles Free Press also was poking around looking on your website. I saw that where you say that this idea of an open mind, as you said, requires some intellectual humility, which is also, as you say, allowing for the possibility that you could be wrong about this. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And the the being wrong sort of has a, a punitive sound to it. But really, it's the story that we have been consuming about American history. There's there's more to it to expand our narrative really rather than being wrong. It's, it's, let's be more, uh, let's more fully tell the story, embrace it, acknowledge it, and, um, see what, what does the community say should change to make it Mm. good for everyone to have a, the kind of future that we all want for our kids.
1: Yeah. And I I was interested in the uh, introduction to your book too, which was written, uh, you know, by your publisher Gabrielle David, and she raised some very interesting points, but one of the things she said was that uh some people would say the systems are broken, but none of the systems are broken. white people are broken, but they do not have to be and I just thought that was well, that's kind of a very strong statement to say you know white people are broken um and I, I doubt that you know white people who who are trying to do what you know their' best with this and and not you know. Act adversely to toward, toward people of color or otherwise you know would react I think I don't know what do you think? do you think you know all white people are broken when it comes to race or or, or is that the same thing as uh is 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 ignorance the same thing as racism? I'm just trying to understand here sort of your perspective on this
0: yes, we're all trying to understand. Uh, My publisher is a a black woman. And so the dialogue, the conversations that I've been able to have with her have been very frank. And I have to admit, this is the first time in my life that I've had these sort of conversations. And I am so grateful for the chance to have frank, open conversations. And when she says white people... Even I know that she would say the definition of what is white has always been changing, too. There were indentured servants who were white coming over here. And then there was a separation between the black slaves who were permanent and the indentured white people who were allowed to be white, (laughs) and Italians, Irish, these were all people that were discriminated against too. So even the word whiteness is full of complexity. When we apply it today, I think, in my own opinion, is that we're referring to the dominant white culture that has, has been developed over time in law, in education, in housing practices. There's been a dominant white culture rather than white individuals. And when we talk about whiteness, uh, in my mind, we're talking about that more contemporary version of how um, since, let's say, the abolishment of slavery and then Jim Crow and then you know that the that time period is how whiteness continued to be the dominant culture. And as it becomes less dominant, there, there can tend to be a backlash to keep it dominant because it's our conditioning. We're used to it. The idea of us, but just being one among many and not the dominant, is a big shift for for many of us because we've been mm-hmm. living it for so long. It's not to be the brokenness is really, I think, more referring to a conditioning, sort of like the water we've been swimming in, with with no blame. It's just meant to be. Let's look at let's look at how this has happened.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's probably just the way it comes across because when it says white people are broken as opposed to white structures or white yes. you know, dominance or whatever, yes. you know, it's just, it's all, it's all in the way it's it's, it's delivered. And, and yeah. I want to have time to do a few writing life questions here before uh, we finish up. Um, there are a lot of things to unpack in this book you've tried to cover from a personal narrative perspective. Um, but uh, in writing about this topic, Carolyn, uh, as a white person, did you have any concerns as to how your work would be received uh, by people of color?
0: Yes. And uh, Gabrielle, my uh, David, my publisher said, you know, there's going to be black people that read this that say this is what has been in front of her face her whole life. You know, what's the what's you know, a firm grasp of the obvious. <laughs> and so uh, the, the concern was really In uh, not so much how would the book be received, but I just need to be true to my own observations and then let the chips fall where they may. I think um, the the majority of my readers are people just like me, Uh, people who are middle of the road, uh, well-intentioned, raised in a certain pretty segregated manner that really would just like to uh, understand things a little bit better. And maybe don't know where to start, maybe don't know what to read, just like I didn't. And it, uh, I'm not ahead of anybody. I'm new to the game, too. I'm I, All of the things that any of my readers struggle with, I struggle with, too. So it's really a chance to just um, put something out there and see if it advances the conversation a bit.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like, Carolyn, from the feedback you've been getting about the book that uh, – That you are opening some minds a little bit or at least having people start to ask questions and maybe dig a little deeper themselves.
0: Yeah, I have gotten that feedback quite a bit and I'm grateful for that. And then at the same time, I I say, and then now that you're here, now read a book by a person of color about all this, you know, Mm -hmm. to continue that expansion um, because people have, uh, have been saying what I'm saying for a very, very long time, I'm just perhaps saying it in a way that is easier to access, where there can feel like uh, this is not too stressful. We can have these conversations. We're not that fragile, so it's uh, that. That's my hope, and I think that's happening. And so I'm grateful to be part of the conversation.
1: Yeah, you, 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 you said you sometimes get the question from people who ask about the mechanics of writing. Well, how long did it take you to write this book? And you said, I think it kind of took me all my life. Talk about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't start talking about this till I was mid mid sixties. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's a process. Yeah. They say when the student is ready, the teacher appears.
1: So what did uh, what did you learn about writing uh, this book? That is the process itself about putting it together, about getting it published. What did you learn that uh, you wish you had known? Maybe when you got this idea, this crazy idea to write a book.
0: I think the um, the value of opening my process has been the greatest uh, insight or in gift. Is that we? I I tend to be a writer who just writes and doesn't show it to anyone. Although I wrote technical writing, I wrote I wrote grant proposals as a career, but personal writing. It it is a it is very, very helpful to open my process to editors and to not own the product to, to say, yes, this is my story. There's a personal attachment to it and even protection of it. But yet to open the process and allow others to comment, allow others to object or or praise that. I think has been a a, a wonderful ex- experience that's been new to me in writing this book
1: yeah that's great and the book is an unintentional accomplice a personal perspective on white responsibility uh listeners, you can find out a lot more about uh, caroline at our in, in our show notes at charloterspocast her links uh, find out more about her writing. we're actually going to jump over to patreon now and talk about writing about writing because uh carolyn this has been an ongoing process for you right you didn't stop with this book you 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 kept writing and you're writing some more right
0: right i have a second book coming out in november
1: and the name of that book
0: it is dispatches from racial divide to a road of repair
1: okay so we're going to be talking about uh, how to repair some of the uh, things you recognized that you discovered that you had been paying attention to all these years
0: Yeah. And and also to uh, a little deeper dive into some of the history, how we got here, why we feel the way we feel and some of that um, uh, perhaps subconscious or implicit things that we carry and uh, how to overcome that.
1: Well, I want to thank you for your uh, your work uh, and also your own, um, you know, your self-work to start with, you know, figuring out, you know, for yourself some of these things, but also then putting it on paper and putting it out there because it's one thing uh, to put a memoir out, that's that takes some courage in and of itself, but to do it on a topic like this takes even more courage. So kudos to you for that uh, for that work. And also Carolyn, thank you for being on Charlotte Rear's podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes
0: at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
1: We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen dot com.